0: You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast, bringing you news and opinion about surf culture, characters, coaching and competition from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses, go to surfsimply.com.
1: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 50 of the Surf Simply podcast. We're recording on Thursday, September the 7th, 2017. My name is Harry Knight and with me today is Rue Hill. Hello, everyone. Will
2: Forster. Hello, everybody. And Asher King. Hello, Webland. I like this. that's your like signature hello. I'm usually the third hello, so I'm like, oh, i got to do something a little bit different. I might try
3: something new. Something, maybe something really British. Howdly-doodly, everyone. What, <laughs> what, pip, pip, toodaloo, and burn it yeah. to your uncle. <laughs> maybe it's going to take a bit of work. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what have you guys been up to? Been, been doing anything much? Will, you've been playing around with Thins. I have
0: been playing where well, yeah, longboarding fins specifically. I bought a very angular Tyler fin for Chikama. I want to track in a straight line and go to the nose and back. No turns. I'm not, not no interested turns. in turning <laughs> that board. So yeah. how
3: excited are you guys about going to Chikama next,
2: on Monday? Monday. In the like four days? Yeah. I'm a lot more excited looking at the swell forecast. I was really excited, but the swell forecast for Peru is like top notch for next week. So I'm really excited to go down there. Yeah.
3: And Chikama is one of those places where even when it gets really, really big, it's still kind of like a longboard wave.
2: Yeah, I've pretty long, much just been... longboardable. Yeah, I've been basically gearing my surfing towards surfing a long point break for yeah. like the last two months. I've been just riding twin fins and big old longboards.
0: I think between Asher. Myself, Harrison and Jesse, we have all of the twin fins left in the world going to Chikama with us. Yeah, <laughs> most of the twin fins are going to be yeah. in Peru next week. We're going to, uh, within the resort, there's this like, like Malibu style wall with the big, you know, Mars mountains behind. We're going to line them all up and take like a cool, the seedling-esque twin fin photo, I think.
3: So for listeners who don't know, uh, you know, we're recording now at the Surf Simply Resort in Costa Rica. But we shut down the resort here for... Uh, September and October, and we quite often run little satellite surf coaching courses at other places around the world, so we've done them in France and Indonesia and various other places, and next week we're doing two weeks of coaching in Peru. And when we do these little courses, uh, like the satellite courses, they're just for level three and four surfers, so surfers that you know, are out the back already catching waves, performing manoeuvres, it's all video coaching. But um, we've done a couple down in Peru at, at Chicama before, And it's a really great spot just because you spend so much time on your feet, like a ridiculous amount of time um, that it kind of gets rid of that um, panicky, like urgent feeling that a lot of surfers have when they feel like they have to do something straight away because they're going to run out of time.
2: Yeah, It's pretty amazing the repetition that someone who is learning to perform maneuvers gets on a wave at Chikama. Whereas, you know, we're pretty lucky with the waves at Keones. You know, on any given day, you can do maybe three or four turns on any wave here. Chikama, you can do like 30 turns <laughs> on every wave. So you're like, no, no, nope, that cutback wasn't right. All right, that one a little better. Okay, no, this one. So you, you just really take away that uh, kind of sense of urgency when you're on the wave, which is so productive when you're working with people. Yeah, it is. I, I, I think the other thing as well, one, one of the things
1: I see a lot when I'm trying to teach people to start doing maneuvers on waves is actually that people want to milk the ride for that, that last couple of seconds before they try and do the maneuver. And you know that's of, that's often the downfall. the wave closes out, they end up in the white water, they don't get to practice that clean maneuver, and again, you get so bored is the wrong term, but but just going along on a wave face stops being quite as novel after a after a day or two there, so you you really start
2: mm-hmm. being
1: excited about the idea of doing turns, you know and you do end the week with thigh muscles like an Olympic
0: deadlifter oh God. oh, yeah, <laughs> oh my wave, God yeah <laughs> I love watching people
3: take off and do like one turn, two turns three turns and then you see them sort of like, like take a breath and relax and then they do another one and then quite often while you get to the second half of the wave and people are standing like with their hands like on their thighs just yeah. standing there holding their own thighs yeah. just waving at people as they go down the line. Yeah
0: chatting at people that you pass. Yeah. We have a video of Asher, which is actually in some of the promo video we released the other day through Surf Simply and you were just kind of pointing at people and just kind of yeah, still, like, just like, yep, still going. Honestly, <laughs> I just did not have the thighs for it.
2: Last year. <laughs> no. This is true. I'm, I'm not really big into to, to training for surfing. I'm sure it's a, a, a great thing when you want to improve your surfing, but I personally haven't gotten too into it. But swear to God, I've, uh, I've just been doing wall sets <laughs> in preparation of this trip. Like, all right, I'm not making that mistake again. My girlfriend actually just got back from El Salvador, which sounds like a
1: really fun, uh, you know, the Chikama's obviously solely uh, left-handers I've I've dragged her around the world over the last two years I think to surf an awful lot of left-hand waves and she's regular foot and
0: uh, you're heading up to El Salvador as well yeah that's exactly what Jesse and I we've got two weeks at Chikama the land of the left and then we go immediately to El Salvador to get our regular footing right-handers back Mm. so it'd be great to to work on both
2: sounds like no one is going to enjoy any waves for the next month I sounds am not. Like a pretty, <laughs> it sounds like a pretty saturated group of surf trips Yeah, I'm I'm going back to the UK. Oh,
3: no. So there's not going to be a lot of surfing going well, on. Well, having said that, if you're going to be surfing in Europe or in the UK, September is probably the nicest month to it do. It is.
1: I'm, you know what? The, the thing I actually really want to do as well, because I've tried the last three years in a row to go and play in the wave pools one way or another, and it's never quite happened. So I'd like to go up to uh, surf Nodonia and get a couple of waves there.
3: Well, I'm going all the way over to... BG to Cloudbreak which I'm very excited about because I haven't ever been there before and I actually bought the trip as a, like a 40th birthday present to myself ages and ages ago before I got asked to go on that trip, <laughs> and now I feel like <laughs> like yeah like I've overindulged a little bit on the surf
0: trips this year. I think you have overindulged. <laughs> I'm going to say this now. <laughs> There's I'm no actually, bitterness here. I, this,
3: this sounds like really churlish but I, I would actually, or I mean, it's bad to complain about going to Fiji because I am excited. It's going to be amazing. But I am quite envious of you guys all going down to Peru together. Like I feel like I've, I've had my, my fill for recent weeks of like big reef breaks. And uh, yeah, I'd love to be hanging out with you guys down in Peru. Mm. Well, you know, I'm keeping an eye on Hurricane Irma at the moment. And if that means that I can't fly through the States, maybe I'll end up coming down and piggybacking your trip. Oh, you instead. meant to <laughs> be flying through Florida, right? Yeah, through Miami. Yeah, so we'll right. see how that goes.
1: Okay, so very quickly, there's not been a lot of news since the last episode that we did. Uh, There was one interesting leak that came out as we record last night from uh, Stab magazine. It looks like the WSL are going to do some fairly massive restructuring of the uh, World Tour for next year. However... As yet, all we have is an an unnamed surfer who is clearly a little bit disgruntled with the changes uh, complaining to Stab Magazine. So it'll be interesting to see when the actual release comes out.
2: So basically, the rumored changes that we have right now are some pretty familiar to stuff that we may have talked about on the podcast in the past. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think actually a lot of podcasts have have had sort of this idea of major and minor league, which is sort of the CT and the QS for us, which it looks like the WSL ones still. You mean instead of having them running at the same time, having one run and then the other one run? Exactly. So you basically have a qualifier feeder straight into the main event, which I personally think is a great idea. Rather than the world champ being crowned at Pipe, the rumor is that they're going to start at Pipeline in February, which is a bit of a more reliable time of the year for Pipe, which is pretty cool. And then the CT season will run until September, presumably ending at Chopu. And the whole season up to that point serves as a qualifier for one sort of ultimate final event, which is going to be a lot like the Super Bowl in American football. What do you have as your ultimate event in soccer?
1: We don't. I mean, I have no there's, idea. there's the FA Cup at the end of the football season. When, but when that's Harry not... says we don't, he means me, Will, and Harry don't. I think that well, no, 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 but soccer <laughs> as a sport does have so, some major events in well, it. Well, no, but so to just, just to, to quantify what, what Ash is saying, the way that this is going to work is that you're going to have almost like the regular world tour is, is going to run through. And at the end of the regular world tour, the top six athletes from the men's tour or the top four from the women's tour are going to get taken away to just do a specialty event to decide who the world champion is. So there's, there's like a last roll of the... Because they could finish at the end of that tour and say, okay, whoever's in number one, they're the world champion. But they're doing this last event that's going to be a final roll of the dice to, to, to let there be an upset or not.
0: Does that remove the surfer who is most consistent throughout the year as a potential champion then? If it's a roll of the dice sort of thing.
1: Well, it's not, it, So it's not necessarily a roll of the dice, but it means that if somebody's got all the way through, that you can't now win the world title without winning an event because you've got to at the very least win the last event of the season
2: for deciding who's the best surfer in the world it makes a lot of sense to have all these events with equal weight right yeah. and you get the best surfer in all these conditions and then you take an average at the end however that model has proved to not be very profitable for the WSL and this new model brings in way more suspense and way more sport with sort of a prime time event at the end you know, it, everybody who's interested will tune in I assume it'll be a lot more financially viable for them. What do you think about having the big showdown in the Mentowise
3: in September? Because I've done a lot of Mentowise or Indo trips at least. And yeah, September starts to get a little iffy. I mean, June, July, August is when you want to be there, right?
2: Yeah, I, I sort of assume that, I don't know, maybe that's one of the details that might be worked out. I mean, this is just a leak on StabMag. It's still pretty speculative. And I'm, I'm sure that a lot more will develop over the next week or two. But yeah, mentalities in September just doesn't seem like a very reliable
1: bet. I would say you could go to the Mentali's in September and be reasonably guaranteed that you're going to get surf, especially if it's early September. But it's not like if you were going to get the best surfers on the best waves, which has always been the WSL's kind of motto, if you like, then you'd want to go in June or July. Like That's when you're more guaranteed to get a real solid swell in waiting period. We can probably assume that that final event will be a pay-per-view event. They've just brought on a guy called Joe Carr, who was an executive at the UFC and he's come in as a strategy, the, the head of strategy for them. Mm-hmm. So whether that will include them switching over to pay-per-view or not, like that's obviously a model that he's worked with over the last five years um and has worked well for the UFC. Yeah. I, I don't know, I, I think that for surfing to run on a pay-per-view thing like they're going to need to do a lot more tweaks than what it sounds like they're doing here before anyone's going to pay for the access to that
0: yeah it's unlikely most people would pay for the whole like every event within the year they'd have to do some kind of big promo for one event kind of like the i mean most people don't pay for every boxing fight but you'd pay for for mayweather McGregor fight you know
1: I heard a, a great one that someone suggested on the uh, our rival podcast uh, or one of them that, that ain't that swell someone our su- brethren podcast brethren podcast yeah. rival podcast <laughs> um, one of the guys on ain't That's well that swell suggested that they should just have a tiered system based on the forecast and if it's two foot it's basically free If it's three to four foot, you start paying. And if it's like pumping 10 foot pipe, then uh, you've really really got to put the money down to watch it.
3: It would kind of make sense to have it where you just pay a subscription through the year. So you pay an annual subscription, you know, it's like $5 a month or whatever. And then you get access to all the WSL content. Yeah,
2: I don't know if it's just me, but in 2017, I do not mind paying for content that I like. Especially if paying for content meant that they could, you know, lengthen the event window. Um, so that you know that you, you know they're they're going to get in good waves, especially Chopu. I I'd pay a lot to watch mm-hmm. the whole Chopu event. Yeah, five
3: um, five dollars a month. It's like yeah, ten dollars a month. Even I'd happily pay that. Yeah, you know what? I would happily pay that
1: if they would produce the thing that we've spoken about on so many occasions, which is just like a good day's recap with narrative, with you know a thirty minute program at the end of each day that I can sit. And, and watch and catch up on the day's events because I, I, there aren't very many occasions when I'll sit and watch like an entire day's day of contest and I don't think that I would pay for access to that
2: but I would definitely pay to be able to, to stay abreast of what's going on. Have you seen some of the content that WSL is creating with uh, like, I think Barton Lynch is doing a lot of analysis videos now mm. a really technical analysis of, of why certain rides score or what judges are going to look for at spots or why certain surfers techniques thrive really well at certain places that is like that is premium content I would definitely pay for that stuff. I would pay to have motivational cassettes that read by Barton Lynch like <laughs> 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 Just because he's got such a positive voice, I don't even think you need to pay for that. I think he just does it for free with Hurley Surf Club. <laughs> there
3: would have to be cassettes, though. I feel like that would, uh, would be nice. You know, just keep. You it want old that school. clunk clip as it goes
1: into the machine? Yeah, then play.
0: Hello, guys. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, just to uh, just to round this off, I uh, I do think it's worth noting all these comments that have uh, that have come out about what's likely to happen with the world tour. I'm just going to finish off with uh, a quote from uh, Dave Proden, who uh, we have had on the show in the past and who is the guy in charge of communications for the WSL. And what he said is uh, that we are currently in discussion to bring ch- bring changes to the sport, the tour calendar and the determination of the WSL champions. We're having these discussions with our surfers and our key stakeholders, and the conversations have been very engaging and encouraging. We look forward to releasing the details when we are ready.
3: Oh, that so, sounds exciting. You know,
1: w- what... What we've got right now is one of the athletes who's, you know, at a guess from from reading this thing on Stab, probably a, a lower tier surfer on the WSL, who's gonna who's not going to do so well under this new system, talking to a, a Stab journalist. And, and this isn't necessarily how they're going to run it. This is just some ideas that they're putting on the table.
3: I bet they're not going to end up in the mentories either. Just because it's so logistically mm-hmm. difficult to run a contest up there, it seems odd that they would go from, never being able to run a contest up there to having the massive showdown Super Bowl of surfing up there.
1: Right. But what you've got to remember is that, right, to run a contest right now, you've got to take 36 surfers and their entourages and the media team up there. And, and you know, a big enough media team to cover three to four days of continuous competition. Whereas what they're saying is is this is six heats. There's six surfers, six heats, that's it. So... There's a much, much smaller entourage that you've got to get in so that they could hold it at the macaroni's resort and and not even need all the bedrooms there. And there's only, what, 12 bedrooms, 15 bedrooms there. If they took over Kandui's for a week, done. Where's the best A-frame in the world? The best A frame in the world. Here's what... I would say that'd be a beach break, right? Well, Probably trestles. I, I don't know. Because yeah. he, here's my feeling is, is that if you're going to have this event, you're going to have it all culminate and say, okay, this is a do or die contest. Mm-hmm. And then you say, okay, it's going to be left hand barrels. All of a sudden that favors somebody. Like, that's putting a massive bias onto who's likely to win. Whereas if it was a, a really good A frame peak, you can go either way. You can surf your backhand or your forehand, whichever is your stronger.
2: Well, that would be kind of the cool thing about Kandui's is it's, it's basically just a roll of the dice. You know, what's the swell? Are we at... Uh, right, but it's still you're at Kandui's or you're at Rifles. Or you could be at A-frames, which is a pretty world-class
3: A-frame. Um, the thing is about that is that there's no A-frame where the scoring potential of the lefts and the rights is going to be equal. Like on any given day... Everyone's going to basically, or ninety percent of the waves are going to be rights or lefts, because the scoring potential of the rights or the lefts will just be better. Yeah, that's
1: true. You know what they need? They need someone to like make a wave pool that's got like a really perfect, consistent left and a right. And then
2: maybe they could buy the wave. Maybe they could buy
1: the rights to that wave pool, (laughs) and and maybe you know they'd probably want to do a test contest there just to see how. Throw Jerry Lopez in the mix. Yeah, Yeah, that's credibility. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Well, you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> um, yeah, actually, on the on the subject of uh, while we're talking about competitions, obviously the, the Hurley Pro at Trestles and the or the Swatch Pro at uh, Trestles for the women, uh, those are both running as we're recording. I think they just got through some around one yesterday. Uh, it's always a good contest to watch, although the swell conditions are not uh, that favorable at the moment. Mm-hmm. Hopefully it will pick up towards the end of the, the uh, contest period. But between now and our next recording, one thing that you are going to, Want to keep an eye out for is all the rumor mill is saying there is going to be this one day contest at kelly slater's wave pool nothing's been announced yet but the the tentatively they're saying around the 18th 19th of september so just keep an eye on that we'll we'll, we'll put a post out on the uh, surf simply uh, social media feeds as soon as we know
0: you're listening to the surf simply podcast
3: so listeners we've got two features for you this episode but before we get into them we are going to be off air for a while, what with all of our various adventures. We're going to be back around the end of October, I think. So we'll probably have another episode out early November. But Harry, you've got quite a few interviews that, that we've done. So are you going to put out a couple of interviews between now and then, do you think?
1: Yeah, I've got a couple of really interesting interviews that I, I think you lovely people in listener land will really enjoy. So uh, I'm going to try and edit those together and get an interview episode together. I think we actually did one this same time last year. We, we had a, an interview episode while we were all away on our, our little travels. Yeah, that was a good one. Live bravely. Good episode.
3: Indeed. In the meantime, if you want to follow any of us on social media, Harry, you're on Twitter and Instagram.
1: Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. I don't use it too much, but Instagram or Twitter at HJM Knight with a K.
2: And Asher? If you want to see pictures of very long lefts, uh, you can find them at at kingasher. That's my Instagram and my Twitter. Aren't you king underscore Asher? Yeah, king underscore Asher. <laughs> However,
0: <laughs> King Asher also has a very interesting yeah. <laughs> account Should you not be interested yeah. in surfing
3: <laughs> Will, what are you? I am at Will and the Water, And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram If you just search for Rue Hill Then uh, I'll pop up I've got different handles on both of them But I think there's only one Rue Hill on both
1: So our first main feature for this episode I wanted to revisit something that we spoke about a little while ago Going way, way back to episode seven of uh, the podcast that we recorded in February 2015 we spoke about the idea of volume to weight ratios and the idea of you know not just looking at the raw volume of the board but trying to balance that out with how big of a board you're riding for how big of a person you are and looking at that ratio as an indication and to allow you to cross compare sizes of boards with different people and just to go into that a little bit for anyone who's not, who's maybe a little new to the ideas of board design. Um, the volume of the surfboard is, is just a measurement of its overall size, you know, how much physical space that surfboard takes up, which is really important because how much space the surfboard takes up is a really good indication of how buoyant the surfboard is going to be. Most boards are about the same density. So a surfboard of a given volume will float in a very similar way on the surface of the water and float a similar amount of a person, a similar amount of weight in a very similar way. Now, we didn't used to use volume. Volumes become more and more important because surfboard designs have become more and more varied. It used to be that that whatever the best surfers in the world were riding, everybody rode the same things. You know, they, Everyone rode longboards in the 1960s and these pin-tailed single fins in the 70s and twin fins as we rolled into the 80s and the problem came that as the boards that the uh, the real elite surfers were riding became more and more and more high performance. Actually, they became quite impractical for most surfers, and particularly through the mid '90s, where the, those rocket outboards that that Slater and Machado and those guys were all riding, they, they just didn't work. I've just bought one of those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bold, bold move. I have to say, possibly a mistake. We'll
0: see how it goes. Well. Um, it's a good job we're talking about this now, then, Rue, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but basically, the, the, the boards that the, the pro level riders were using were not that functional, and it, it kind of encouraged over the last ten or fifteen years this real explosion in. You were mentioning earlier, Will, all the twin fins that you guys are riding, a resurgence in longboarding, all these different things, and it means that when you go down to the beach or when you go to a surfboard shop, there is just this complete array of different sized and shaped boards. And it's really hard to know. The old way we used to do the measurements of the boards was, you know, oh, well, I'm riding a board that's six foot long and and 18 inches wide. And now that doesn't tell you anything because the boards are such different shapes. We needed a way for me to be able to to look at a different design and say, okay, is that board big enough for me to ride it? Is it going to be enough of
3: a surfboard? Six foot long by 18 inches wide sounds like a horrible surfboard. (laughs) (laughs) But no, it's true. Like I've got five foot five boards that are bigger than six
1: foot three boards exactly exactly that we then started using the volume of the board measured in in litres of displacement so if you pushed the surfboard down into a bucket of water how much how many litres of water would flow out over the side It was a a measurement that they were already using in windsurf equipment in europe which is why it was easy for us to jump on it what it really gives you a a measurement for is is how easily the surfboard's going to paddle you know, that, that, that's what it really comes down to. The better the board floats, the more buoyant a surfboard is, the better it's going to paddle. And the more likely you are to be able to catch waves and catch waves earlier. But the, the most important thing that it gives us is this way to compare apples and oranges, to look at fish and shortboards and eggs and single fins and, and say, okay, this is about the sort of volume that I need. And then start looking at the finer details
3: of the surfboards. Um, when we talked about this before, we got a lot of people writing in talking about all of the other variables that are significant in a surfboard. And there are lots of other variables that are really significant. But I think that this is probably, if you're going to only have one variable, I think the volume is probably the most important one to know.
1: Yes, I think volume is a really good starting point. And, and after we did the, the feature on it in episode seven, we got, we got a lot of emails back asking more and more questions. And so I wrote an article for the Surf Simply magazine, which uh, you were telling me the other day, Rue, is is actually for somehow getting
3: more traction than our homepage. I don't understand <laughs> yeah, it. I don't it's get weird it. So, because the, the traffic that's coming to it hasn't been linked from somewhere. So it wasn't like it was picked up by, you know, some uh, kind of publication and given loads of exposure. But yeah, just, I was just looking at the analytics on the website the other day and that volume to weight article gets more hits every single day than all of the rest of the... Podcast, magazine, all our videos, yeah. everything else put together. Now, my theory here, or my hypothesis, I should say,
1: based on the scientific nature of our uh, second feature. Yeah, this is going to get super science this episode, guys. <laughs> Just like buckle up. <laughs> um, but my hypothesis is that article is the only place on the internet where we talk about volume to weight to ability. And we've really taken the effort to define the, the, what sort of size boards you should be riding, depending on what skill sets you're working on. Most of the, the, the other charts that you'll find, most of the other volume recommendations just say beginner, intermediate, advanced. And we, we spoke before that, w- w- what does that mean? What, what does intermediate mean? What does a beginner mean? What does a, a, an advanced surfer mean? And it, it just leaves you not really very sure. All, all that being said, there were actually a few problems with that article that I wrote. Um, and there were a few problems with the scale that we came up with. What we the, the scale that we ended up using was pounds per liter. So the number of pounds in
3: weight per liter of volume in surfboard. And, and that's my fault. also <laughs> Because the big argument we were having was like, do we go all metric and do kilograms per liter? Yeah. Or do we go pounds per liter? The logic being that, you know, already we're mixing Imperial and metric. When you buy a surfboard, it's a 6'4 that's X liters. So, yeah. you know, and everyone in America knows their weight in pounds, which is where most of our clients come from, our, our guests. And um, so anyway, we just thought, well, let's go with the units people know. Yeah. And, and you wanted to go with like the full metric system, where we, which is actually much tidier. And after 12 months of me going, no, 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 let's keep it mixed up. I've sort of said, yeah, maybe we should just gone with your system right <laughs> well, from the start because I do think it's cleaner and tidier, and for reasons I imagine you're about to go into, it's a lot more elegant.
1: Yes, it is. So, so the f- the first problem is that doing this volume to weight ratio, um, actually, of course, pounds per litre is not volume to weight; it's weight to volume, and it basically it just produces this really abstract number. You're riding volume to weight of three point six. Well, what does 3.6 it, it it doesn't look or feel you can't you can't it's not very intuitive it's not very intuitive it's also inversely proportional so as the number gets bigger and bigger and bigger the surfboard is getting smaller and smaller and smaller so it's just this completely our intentions were good but we ended up with this completely counterintuitive system that was also then a mix of metric and imperial and
3: and whatever and what what we found was when we were teaching it to people it just was a bit clunky trying to get people's heads around it. Yeah. So we didn't sit on our laurels. We, we,
1: we went away and we, we carried on working on, on this system. Uh, so the first thing that we did was we did go volume to weight, the number of liters relative to the weight. Now, that doesn't sound like it should make a big difference. But what it does is it creates a proportional scale. It means that the bigger the number, the bigger the surfboard. So instantly it kind of connects. You know, a high number means means that. Uh, the second thing we did was was as we've kind of been alluding to, we've gone all metric. And So we're looking at uh, weight in kilograms rather than in in pounds. All of our Australian listeners are going to be like, too fucking right, mate. <laughs> well, hopefully everyone all over the world, really, other than other than the US, now is 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 on metric. You know, well, the uh, English
3: still use stone, don't they?
1: Well, no, not really. I mean, it, here's the interesting thing in. As, as people going about their day-to-day tasks, Americans use pounds, and the English have this even worse system of stone. But actually, if you go to a hospital, they weigh you in kilos. And if you're, you know, the U.S. officially is on the metric system. Everything that's done on the federal level is done on the metric system. It's just day-to-day users in the shops operate still on, on Imperial. Anyway. I'm getting sidetracked. The final thing that we decided to do, what we were doing was, was taking the volume of the board and dividing it by the weight of the rider. And that gives you a, 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 again, a slightly abstract number. That's a little bit hard to get hold of. So what we then did is turned that into a percentage. So you're looking at the size of the board as a percentage of your body weight. That then looks wonderful. So, for example, if I was riding, uh, I'm about 80 kilograms, uh, which is more or less, it's about 180 pounds. If I ride an 80-litre surfboard... That's quite a big, long distance, <laughs> just to give you an idea, listeners. Um, if I ride an 80-litre board, that would be a ratio of 100%. Because one, if you displace one litre of water... One litre of water weighs one kilogram. And therefore, if you just run through Archimedes' principle, the amount of water that you displace, you can support that same load. So one kilo of
3: displaced water should be able to support one kilo of weight. So in theory, if you have a surfboard that's 100%, you should be able to only just stand on it when it's not moving and it will stay above the water and float you. I think
1: theoretically, if you got uh if you somehow managed to make a platform, because a surfboard wouldn't be the most stable thing, but if you got a platform that was exactly one hundred percent, you would look like Jesus. The would board just... would be completely submerged and the the bottom of your foot would be on the surface uh, yeah, of the water. Yeah, that's right.
0: Uh, Kinda of like neutral buoyancy. It would be absolute mm, yeah.
1: neutral buoyancy, yeah. A one hundred percent ratio would be an eighty litre board for me. A fifty percent would be a forty litre board, forty litres for um, 80 kilograms. Now, as we just said, that means the board is going to be under the water when I'm lying or standing on it. The whole board's going to be sitting well under underneath the water. The force that's then going to allow you to, you know, sk- stand on the board and skim across is the hydrodynamic lift from the board moving across the water. And so the smaller the board, the more of that hydrodynamic lift you're going to need to generate in order to support your own weight. Does that kind of make sense? Yep. Crystal mm-hmm. clear. Fantastic. Um, so we've now got this, this new scale, this, this um, ratio of, of volume to weight expressed as a percentage. And what we've then done is we've aligned that in, in exactly the same way that I did in the original article. I've aligned that with our level scale where, where, we're, where we're learning. At Surf simply we've got this tree of knowledge, and I'll put links to all of this in our show notes. In the tree of knowledge, what we've tried to do is break down all of the skills required to go from never having seen a surfboard before to being a very competent surfer. And we've broken all of those skills into four levels. What we call level one, level two, level three, and level four. Level one being uh, a beginner, um, someone that's in the white water, learning the basics of board control and and manoeuvring the board. Level four being someone who's up riding, really working on higher level maneuvers and, and building finesse into, into their wave riding. So what I've then done is based on, you know, conversations that, that we've all been having over the last few months as we've been putting this this chart together and getting really happy with it, is just talking through, you know, what boards we ride, what boards we recommend to all of our different clients. We've sort of been keeping notes
3: on what Size boards we're giving to different people and 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 i mean the big thing for us as coaches is we're so regularly hit by the problem that someone's choice of board specifically the volume becomes very quickly the limiting factor in their surfing and we can't coach them unless we put them on a different board yes
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So the scale now looks a little bit like this. For level one surfers, just getting used to catching waves, uh, probably in the broken white water, learning to get to the feet, but more importantly than learning to stand up, learning to control the board, learning to turn, to to understand the difference between what we call trimming turns and carving turns. And uh, you're probably looking at riding a board at a ratio of between 100 and 150. And certainly, I would never advocate riding a board smaller than 100%. Because exactly as we said, that board's neutral buoyancy is not enough to keep you and the board above the surface of the water. It's going to need to be moving forwards. And the amount of lift created increases exponentially with board speed. Um, It's Mm -hmm. a, a squared equation. So as soon as you're starting to get that board moving forwards you're starting to generate lift. But when you're working in the white water and you're working on moving your weight around on the board, we're going to make mistakes. And so you really want a board that by default is going to keep you on the surface of the water and is going to have that stability.
3: Uh, even more than that, if you ride a board that's a bit too small, you probably can stand up on it and go along. But one of the big things, like you said, is, is trying to learn how to stall and accelerate and to carve and to trim down the line and then to walk to the back and carve the board back around the other way and go forward. And this is all stuff that we use the whitewater for as sort of a training ground. And if you ride a board that's a little bit small, as soon as you put your weight back, you stop. And so you can't put your weight back and perform turns and move forward and accelerate. So it kind of defeats the point of being in the whitewater at all. I mean, as I say, you can learn to stand up, but that's it. Yeah. So, so then moving on, um, level
1: two, which is for us, that, that's you're just starting to paddle out the back. You're starting to think about riding green waves. And in particular, you're now starting to think about developing a little bit of independence away from your coach. You're trying to catch the waves by yourself as opposed to being assisted in by your uh, coach or instructor. My suggested minimum volume would be an 80% ratio to your weight. Again, if you go too small, what's going to happen is you're just not going to have that margin for error. An awful lot of the boxes that we have in our tree of knowledge in the level two is all about learning to put yourself in the right place at the right time at the right speed in order to catch a wave. And if we make little mistakes in that, having a slightly bigger board will allow you to get away with those mistakes you'll be aware of them. You'll be catching the wave very late or you'll have to really dig and put those extra paddles in, but you will be able to catch the wave and continue working on some of the other boxes that are in level two, which is once you're up and riding, thinking about now trying to turn and surf the board across the wave face a little bit more. If you ride a board that's too small, pretty much all of your waves are going to be really, really late drops. Very, very steep. Um, It's going to be very difficult for you to start to progress away from, from running straight into the beach of the whitewater to start thinking about angling across the wave face.
3: And actually, that's something that we see in Level 3 surfers as well, when they're riding boards that are a little bit too small for them. In their mind, it's a good size, because they're catching waves and going down the line. And in their mind, they're thinking, oh, a lot of the waves are kind of closing out today. And actually, it's not. It's that their board's so small that a lot of the waves, they're only just catching them, and they're coming over with the whitewater and getting stuck behind that initial section. That just happens all the time, doesn't it?
1: It it does, exactly that. So so yeah, just to, to carry on, level three is, we're now talking about a surfer who's riding across the wave face, who is maybe starting to think about performing some basic manoeuvres on the open face, starting to think about cutbacks, starting to think about little re-entries off the white water. maybe thinking about speed generation through pumping and compression and extension.
3: And most of these are kind of horizontal manoeuvres rather than vertical manoeuvres. Yes, yes.
1: So the, these are, you know, a, a cutback is generally described as a, as a fairly horizontal manoeuvre and we're definitely talking more about a, a an S-turn cutback rather than a roundhouse cutback. And with the re-entries, we're thinking more or sort of horizontal re-entries rather than vertical top to bottom re So sort of hitting a section that's coming towards you rather than coming down the line with you. Exactly that. Um, and again, uh, my suggested ratio is somewhere between 65 and 80%. And certainly I wouldn't recommend going below a 65% ratio. Again, exactly as you said, you're going to find yourself paddling for waves and catching them so late that everything else that you do has to be perfect. Your angled takeoff has to be perfect. Your pop up has to be perfect in order for you to get the opportunity to work on these maneuvers. And if it's not, you're going to find yourself low down on the wave face with no speed
3: getting stuck behind the white water. So, I guess another way of saying that is if your main priority when you're out surfing is actually catching unbroken waves, then you want to be on a board that's 65% or bigger. Yep, exactly.
1: Now it's it's worth pointing out here that I, I'm going through this saying minimum uh, volumes, and as we're going higher and higher and up in in these levels and inability, these numbers are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. But what's really important is these are just suggested minimum volumes, and there is nothing wrong with people riding bigger boards. Asher, if if those of you that are following Asher on Instagram or, or Will or, or Rue who all like riding bigger, longer boards, you will see on their social media feeds that riding big long boards will in no way shape or form hold you back from doing advanced level four maneuvers even though they're riding close to a hundred percent uh volume to weight ratio but there are problems with you know a level one surfer riding a very very small board or, or anyone riding a board that's
3: just too small for their level yes I, and, and and another thing worth bearing in mind as well is, is it's not when we're talking about these levels it's not like you are level two or you are level three i mean when you're out at an average beach break you know, on a, on a head-high day, then, then yeah, your level's gonna be consistent. But you might be level three when you're out at Guiones on a head-high day, but then suddenly, I mean, I was out at a big reef break in Indonesia not long ago, and I was very much just thinking about getting over the ledge and getting into some of those waves. So while I might consider myself sort of doing level four stuff when I'm here at the, at the Guiones, you know, I was very much back to just wanting a really nice big board, well, over that 65% ratio, just so I could
2: get into these big, kind of monstrous waves that I was trying to paddle into. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, will the percentage scale f- reflect that? For example, with, with boards designed to surf bigger waves, like in waves that, you know, Rurai or, or, or anybody is uncomfortable with, you're not actually performing maneuvers. Let's say it's, it could be anything from, you know, Guiones to those big reef passes that you're surfing. If you are surfing those, does it fit into that 65% category? Uh, yes slightly we'll, we'll, one of the interesting things that we've done we, not
1: only have we revamped this but we've revamped our tree of knowledge over the last uh, couple of months as well and one of the things that we've done is in level 4 we have a, a skill stream that is riding bigger waves mm-hmm. you know, pushing yourself into bigger heavier conditions and what that does is the path from there leads you back in to level 2 does where it does a big old round. loop all the way back to where you're paddling out learning the conditions you know learning some independence learning to be in the right place at the right time at the right speed and And, so predicting waves of course uh, which is the big thing exactly so we've kind of built that the idea is that that this volume to weight ratio that we've come up with should sit alongside our tree of knowledge and it should allow you you know exactly as you said someone on a a head high day at, at their local beach break might be working on level four skills but it's For me, I am working on certain level four skills. There are also level three skills that I have not perfected. And if I'm working on those level three skills, it might not be a bad thing for me to take one of my bigger boards out to have a little bit more volume. So depending on what I'm working on on any given day, you could use the tree of knowledge and this volume to weight scale to give you an idea of what would be a sensible board to take out.
2: I would be really, really interested to see a comparison on volume between Surfers that are surfing really tremendously big waves where literally anyone's goal is just taking off and going straight and the volume of someone who's maybe just getting used to um, standing up at all. Uh, well, Just to give you an idea, the I, I know
1: that a, a good average size for a big wave gun is somewhere between 50 and 70 liters, okay. Dep- depending on so the length of big. the board and, and who it is. Now... Your weight in kilos is I mean, maybe low 60s. Low 60s? I'm about 140 pounds. Then. Okay, so, so we're talking somewhere between 80 and 100%. That's really interesting. Ratio for a standard for a gun
3: for you, which would line up with what we're saying with, with you know, a Level 2 surfer. And that, Actually, that's the, uh, about the, the ratio of the seven O gun that I've just bought for taking out to Fiji. There we go. Even though the forecast doesn't look like. We're be <laughs> <and> the
1: <waves. laughs> there we go. Um, so anyway, pushing on through the chart, um, we, we I've sort of interjected a, a level three point five into this scale, um, just because there, there there is that point. Level three is quite a big um,
3: is quite a big region, um, and actually, each of these levels is almost an order of magnitude bigger than the preceding one in terms of how long it takes to progress through and the amount of skills in it.
1: It does. So, so you know, le- level 3.5 is is where you, you're getting a basic cut back in and you're getting a, a basic re-entry. And it's really moving forward with perfecting those manoeuvres and also understanding how to use them on a given wave, how to link those manoeuvres together. Moving into level four. Level four is interesting because we've actually split the um, stream. We've got a longboard specific stream. We've got a barrel riding specific stream. I mentioned already the big wave. But if you're going down the performance surfing route, which I think is, you know, where a lot of people think of in terms of level four surfing, you know, advanced surfing.
3: And, and, you know, imagine 12 o'clock vertical turns off the top of the wave type of thing.
1: Yeah. Contest surfing. Big vertical reentries. We've got uh, roundhouse cutbacks. Um, yeah, all the stuff that you would expect to see going on at Trestles. In fact, uh, over the next couple of days, my suggested ratio is between forty and fifty percent. So, what are some of the top pros riding? Can you give us an idea. So that's the final thing: is the pro level riders. Now, I've put pro level as thirty-five to forty percent, and that more or less matches up. I, I said we've we've cross-referenced all of this with a lot of other stuff one of the things that we've cross-referenced with is the other volume calculators that are used online one of the big ones is the one the guild factor that is used by lost by Roberts, by super uh, and that was developed by an ex-pro surfer and and it's actually it's the same thing The, the guild factor is your volume to weight in litres and kilograms they just haven't done the multiply the end result by 100 to turn it into a percentage and he recommends basically 34 to 36 percent for wct pro surfers and it's a bell curve and the vast majority of them are falling in at that 35 percent which is what what we recommend uh, as a pro level rider
3: so what are you riding at harry as your as your most high performance shortboard um well so the 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 shortboard that I ride day to day
1: is about thirty three litres, which puts me at about forty one
3: percent. So you're you're just outside that high performance WCT threshold. Yeah, well I'm I'm inside that level four range. And probably that is a little bit small for me given what I ride and, and how I do. That's actually smaller than both Jesse and I ride. We ride the same. We both ride at 46%. And I Mm -hmm. think that's interesting because it's a good example of why it's good to talk about percentages, not litres. Because I'm 70 kilos and Jesse's like 50 something kilos, 54 kilos, I think. And, you know, but we're both surfing at 46%. But they're obviously different volumes, boards in litres. Exactly. And I'm riding
1: a way bigger board than either of you guys. But you're actually riding a smaller board. But I'm actually riding a smaller board. It's so peculiar.
2: How does your your longboard size up, Ash? I was going to say, so mine are kind of all over the board. My most (laughs) high performance surfboard would come in at like uh, 41%. And that's pretty much a board. That's a board I only ride when the waves are really good. But I consistently ride boards all the way up to almost 150%.
1: There you go. Your um, your longboard's about 150 Yeah, my so?
2: longboard's about 150%. And I have boards at nearly every increment on the <laughs> way up. I probably have eight increments on that way up. And I, I really think that is important for the listener to that that percentage is super useful, but compare it with what your goal is in the session. You know, the, sometimes it is the most high performance surfing you can do. Sometimes it's gonna be it's gonna have an emphasis on something else. And that's where you wanna choose your corresponding percentage from. Absolutely. If
3: you're working on big long roundhouse cutbacks and uh floaters then you you literally don't need as tight a turning arc as if you're working on vertical snaps off the top. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, you can surf a bigger board and you can have a, having a bigger board means you can get more down the line speed and have more space between you and the critical part of the wave to draw that big long carving turn out.
2: Yeah. For example, basically when I'm trying to do just that, I really enjoy riding a board that's significantly bigger, like a six, four at 34 liters. I'm not sure the percentage, but um, yeah, just because of that rail line and because of the added volume, I can go a lot faster and I can draw a much longer arc. Yeah.
0: Um, when I was always buying uh, like off the rack surfboards, my recommended in inverted commas, literage was always around like 32, 33. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually from experience buying and riding those boards compared to the boards that I have slowly, um, preferred, in this case, from just riding a lot of different boards, they were way too small. I, you know, in contrast to what I ride now, like a 33-liter board compared to, like, my high-performance shortboard being 40 liters, I, my wave count is higher, and so I've had the, the, the chance to practice all my maneuvers w- with way more consistency, um, and so my, the biggest thing I did for my, sur- my high-performance surfing was ride a board which is, you know, almost a, uh,
1: 25% bigger yep. than what was my original recommended well, this is this is the really interesting thing when you compare the numbers that we have on our scale with some of the other ones that exist. Like I said, the um, the guild scale suggests, you know, 34 to 36 for WCT pros. It suggests 38 to 42 for an average surfer. Now, that's not an average surfer, you know, when when we compare that with what we've built, you know, between the four of us just in this room, we've got thousands of hours of of coaching experience at all different levels. 38 to 42% for an average surfer well we're talking about an average good shortboarder like if you took all the the ripping shortboarders around the world then yeah that would be about right um, it says for a novice surfer 40 to 50% well so that's a novice surfer out the back working on turns it's not a novice surfer that's never seen a board before so the really important thing that we've done like i say with this chart is we've aligned these volume to weight ratios with
3: specific skills and specific drills that you might want to be working on yeah i think generally speaking when you look online at volume calculators and these variations on these kind of charts for from any of the surfboard manufacturers they they always sort of have the what they call advanced as being like pro level then intermediate is like slightly below pro and then entry level as is still sometimes even like for a short board still often like really really small board so usually what you'll find is that all of the boards are just really geared around like incredibly high performance surfing i think only a tiny percentage of surfers are actually performing at that kind of level and performing those kind of maneuvers need those tiny little boards Um, and i guess it's because probably the people sitting down designing the boards designing the website working in those places are really they're surrounded by pro surfers and they're probably pro surfers themselves and their whole Scale has just shifted a long way away from 99% of people and what they're doing in the water.
1: Yeah, I, I think as well the idea that, as I mentioned at the start of the article, that the, the, reason, the way that we used to measure boards was uh, was by length. And, you know, the, 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 there was this idea that the smaller the board, the better a surfer that you were. And that's kind of carried over into the volume thing as well, and, and this idea that the smaller volume you can ride, the better a surfer you are. and I, I guess the, the final point for this really is that just don't ever make a size of board or a volume of board or, or even a volume to weight ratio a goal um, or a target. Firstly, because as we kind of alluded to at the start of the article, volume is only a starting point when, when considering surfboards. Looking at volume or volume to weight ratios gives us an ability to to cross compare all these different designs of surfboards with all these different shapes and sizes of athletes. But you can go away, you could just take a square cube of foam that was the right volume to weight ratio. You're not going to catch any waves on it. You're not going to surf on it. We've got to consider all the rest of the design features of the surfboard to make sure it's actually going to work for it and the second reason is that you should be thinking of exactly as asha said before a style of surfing or a specific maneuver that should be your goal and you then want to ride a board that's going to help you achieve that goal rather than one that's going to hold you back from it
3: Okay, so i'd like to talk a little bit about Island Earth, which was a film by Sarah Sutton that came out recently it's a it's a documentary it's not necessarily just about surfing it's it's more about the um big agriculture g m o pesticide community clash which is has been happening over the last two or three years in Hawaii. Now, I will just warn you in advance I did just get pretty into this and <laughs> so because it's just it was about a lot of areas that i'm super interested in so yeah the next sort of you know the next bit of the of the show listeners is if you're interested in GMOs pesticides and just reviewing evidence and just science generally you'll enjoy this Otherwise, you might not so much. <laughs> so, you see, as I said, Island Earth is this new film by Sarah Sutton. So, he was a pro surfer on and off and, and a filmmaker, and he's the guy behind Cordroy TV. You guys know that? hmm I do. Um, you may also have seen his toes over the nose on the cover of Surfer's Journal back in 2011.
2: One of my favorite uh, Surfer's Journal covers. I think, it, I think it's the only cover of any major magazine taken with a GoPro. Ah, ah
3: that is a good fact. hmm Um, He's also done a bit of work commercially for Adidas and Apple um, as a filmmaker, I think. Now, I have to confess that before I sat down to watch this, I did feel a certain sense of trepidation, as I'm sure anyone who's uh, familiar with the scientific literature and GMOs might. I was a bit worried that it was going to be a sort of poorly researched string of hand-waving claims that were totally unsupported by evidence, which created this kind of false choice between two options. So... You know, on the one hand, you typically have the wholesome family who are growing their own food organically. And on the other hand, you have the evil big corporation who are destroying the planet and all the people on it. So was it that? Well, I'll I'll kind of talk through a few points that the film made and, and let you decide. Uh, and I, I will say, like, there's, there's so much in this film that I could have got into. I, I, my first piece that I wrote on it uh, was about an hour and a half long. So <laughs> I decided just to hit three of what I think are the really big, big points, but there's a lot in this film that I'm just not going to touch on purely for time. So, the film makes these three basic claims. One, uh, pesticide usage has gone up with the widespread use of GMOs, so that's over the last sort of 20 years or so. Mm -hmm. Two, kids are having their health affected by the spraying of pesticides on crops, specifically atrazine. That's the one chemical they talk about in the movie. And three the problem could be fixed if we all started growing organic food. So like, let's just talk about those three claims a little bit. So first of all, has pesticide usage gone up with the widespread use of GMOs? That's a central theme to the film. In fact, if pesticide usage hasn't gone up, then the rest of the film is kind of meaningless. So there was this meta-analysis published in November 2014 which looked at 147 studies by different research groups, not all industry-controlled, which showed that over the last 20 years of using GMO crops, pesticide use has actually gone down by 37% overall. As an aside, it's also increased yield by 27% and increased farmer profits by 68%. And that's because an awful lot of pesticide and,
1: or, or pest and insect resistance is actually built in to the crops at a
3: genetic level. Uh, with some of them, it is with Bt crops. Yeah. Um, and then with other crops, they're genetically designed to be resistant to a particular pesticide like glyphosate mm-hmm. so that you can use more of it. So yeah. there's a plausible mechanism for pesticide use going up or down. Um, what do you mean by Bt crops? So Bt crops, I, I can't remember quite what Bt stands for, but it basically is a crop with a, um, where there's a chemical produced inside each of the cells of the crop which acts as a pesticide, so you don't then need to put pesticides on it. It's, the BT stands for bacteria.
2: There. When I watched it, I felt like the central theme was that these big corporations are creating the GMO seeds to require more of their pesticides. Yeah, and so
3: that's what the glyphosate-resistant crops are. Okay. Uh, glyphosate is the chemical in Roundup, which is made you know, famously by Monsanto. So the idea is with those crops that if you make them resistant to Roundup, then you can spray Roundup, which then kills the pests. Mm -hmm. Whether they're using more Roundup or less, we'll get into a little bit later on. But this particular study that came out in November 2014 was interesting because it was a meta-analysis, which means it's looking at lots of different studies. And overall, the reduction was 37%. But you've hit on something really important. Well, actually, first of all, let me just say that that figure of 37% wasn't specific to Hawaii, and it may be. And they allude to this in the film that Hawaii is an outlier. Um, but the film didn't actually address any of that data at all, which is which is kind of weird and immediately to me smelt a little bit like anti-GMO ideology rather than genuine investigative journalism. I, I do know that Hawaii is a slightly special
1: circumstance, isn't it? Because they have such a, a stable climate throughout the year, they can get a lot of growing seasons and a lot of cycles, and they can a really good test bed if you're engineering crops to get better yields and pest resistance and whatever. It's a really good place to do your testing there because you can get multiple yields in a season.
2: Yeah, which I think was one of their kind of underlying points.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, but there's no reason that I could find why it would fall outside of Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, regulations which we'll yes. come to later yeah so one of the things they said in the film was that a lot of these chemicals uh, the the restrictions on their usage was decided before the epa was formed but actually most of this has been since the early mid 90s and the a- epa has been around since uh, the 70s yeah and, and actually so. the fda the with the food and drug administration has been around since the early part of the 19th century for over 100 years If Cyrus Sutton had looked at some of these figures and had talked about them, then he would have realised that that figure of the 37% reduction in pesticides um, since the introduction of GMOs, while it contradicts the claims he made in the film, is actually as meaningless as the contradiction to those claims. Precisely because GMOs aren't one category, and this is really important. There's tons of different GMOs and tons of different non-GMO crops, and they all have different pros and cons, and depending on where they're grown and how they're produced in different parts of the world. So BT crops have actually reduced insecticide use. Glycophate-resistant crops, like we talked about, slightly raised glycophate use, although they decreased the use of other herbicides. But because the increase in herbicides was slightly greater than the decrease in insecticides, they argue that overall pesticide use went up because of GMO. The point I'm making is that those two figures aren't even related. It's willfully misleading to report it like that. Why not say BT crops reduce insecticide use? Great. But glyphosate-resistant crops increase glyphosate use. And that's what we object to. And that's a really, really good point. But the trouble is it all just gets bundled up as anti-GMO. But but GMO is this fake category because there's so many different individual organisms, each with their own pluses and minuses. Yeah. So the next point in the film is that kids are having their health affected by the spraying of uh, pesticides on crops, uh, specifically atrazine, as I said, but presumably glyphosate, although the film seems to focus on atrazine. So obviously, if it's true, then this is terrible and we should do everything we can to fight to protect the people of Hawaii. And, And I really hope that goes without saying, despite whatever criticisms I'm making of the film. So the first big question is, how bad is this problem? And the way that you answer that is by looking at the epidemiological evidence. In other words, look at the data of how many people are getting sick who live or work or go to school near these fields, and how does that compare to 20 years ago? I couldn't find any evidence that more people are getting sick, but my search was only over a couple of days and wasn't exhaustive. I did find some studies, not from Hawaii, but showing respiratory problems associated with people working with pesticides. It was only one study, and it was an association so it, it wasn't showing that there was a causal effect. Um, and it wasn't for any of the symptoms that were described in the film. But that would have been a good place for the film to start. Now, I, I think it took Cyrus two years to make this film. So I'm kind of surprised that he didn't uncover any evidence or any research or data at all. I mean, if, if it's out there. Mm-hmm. If it is a problem that's happening in Hawaii, then I think Cyrus undermines the credibility of the movement by making a film which relies on anecdotes and emotionally manipulative uh, cinematography instead of presenting compelling evidence. Or he could have made the first half of the movie, The Anecdotal Evidence, without getting into all the organic stuff at the end, and just stopped there and said, look, this is an appeal to researchers. We need people to actually come and study this phenomenon and see if we have got a problem here and if we have to see how big it is. But I think he was trying to make out that he already had answered all of those questions, which is possibly a bit disingenuous. If he was trying to make that film, I think doing lots of personal experiences wasn't really the way to do it. I think he should have done it like this. So first, answer the evidence question. How many people are getting sick by looking at the epidemiological data? If it turns out that there is a real problem, then there are two principal pesticides being used that we know about. glyphosate, atrazine. So the first thing to understand about toxicity is how big is the dose. Just stating that something is toxic is meaningless. Pretty much anything that you ingest will kill you if you have enough of it. Chocolate is lethal to most most things. It's just you've got to eat a lot of it. Yeah. Anything, anything that you eat, like literally there'll be something in it, which if you have enough of it will kill you. I live daily on the edge of lethal chocolate doses. <laughs> you, you live at LD49. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs>
0: So it's not quite how the LD50 no, scale no, works, but,
3: <laughs> <laughs> but I like it. Uh, so scientists use something called LD50 measures, and a substance's LD50 is how much it would take of any given substance to kill 50% of participants adjusted for their weight. So the lower the LD50 number, the higher the toxicity. So let me give you some examples. Capsicum that you get in hot sauce has an LD50 of 47.2 milligrams per kilograms. Caffeine and aspirin are both around 200 milligrams per kilogram. So caffeine and aspirin are 200, capsicum is 47.25, 0.2, sorry. So that number is four times higher, which means that you have to have four times as much caffeine and aspirin to kill you as capsicum. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Now atrazine is between 672 and 850 and glyphosate is 4,320. So, you know, I could point out how caffeine is three times more toxic than atrazine and 20 times more toxic than glyphosate, just to give you an idea if you had it in front of you. But then I'd actually be making exactly the same error that Cyrus Sutton does in his film. As I said, it's all about dose, in other words, exposure levels. So how does the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, determine what dose is safe you to be exposed to. The EPA tests a substance on numerous animal species then they use the results from the most sensitive species tested as the basis for what's called the reference dose. The reference dose represents the level or below the level at which a daily aggregate dietary exposure over a lifetime will not pose a risk to human health. Now get this the EPA sets this level 100 times lower than the minimum amount shown to cause any harm if ingested every day for the rest of your life. A hundred times lower. That's two orders of magnitude.
2: So you said that the, or the EPA is using a variety of uh, mammal species to figure out the toxicity. How close do these animal species represent a human?
3: Well, that's a good point. Because so maybe
2: if a guinea pig is, is less than a hundred times more sensitive... Um, then we'd be posing a problem.
1: (laughs) But it says that they use the
3: most sensitive set results. They use the most sensitive mammals that they can. Obviously, they can't ethically. You can't test this stuff on humans, right? So they they test it on a variety of different mammals. And then whichever mammal is the most sensitive, they assume that humans are 100 times more sensitive than the most sensitive mammal. And that's the safety buffer that they give themselves. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you're right. If you were a thousand times more sensitive than the most sensitive mammal then you've got a problem
2: yeah i guess
1: but that's still working on the assumption that you consume that dosage every day for your life
3: yes that's true (laughs) not not just one exposure so so yeah as you say if you're a If if you've got a part of the human population that is 100 times more sensitive than the most sensitive species in the toxicology tests, then you'd still be fine after daily exposure over a lifetime. That's the buffer that the EPA has given themselves. So the film is claiming that big agriculture companies in Hawaii are being allowed to systematically ignore these regulations. That's a big claim. And I'm not saying it's not true, but it is a big claim. And the film doesn't offer any evidence that that's happening just more anecdotes. And the next subject in the film I think should have been to tackle precisely the concept of evidence, why requiring evidence is important and why evidence is not the same thing as requiring proof. They should have talked about why anecdotal evidence and by anecdotal I mean people's personal accounts, it's a great way to prompt us to dig deeper, but it can't be relied upon as evidence in and of itself because we don't know all the variables in any one case, uh, we don't know the subconscious biases, the factors that haven't been properly observed or taken into account when they were telling that story. Hence the famous saying, the plural of anecdote is not data. <laughs> I like that, that's a good saying. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so he should have talked us through whatever is the current epidemiological evidence, which we've talked about, and the clinical evidence as well. And finally, Cyrus should have asked the question, how much research has been done? And that's important because if there's no evidence that atrazine causes harm, but there's been no research, that's very different from there being no evidence that it causes harm despite billions of dollars of research, which as far as I could tell is what the case is. So I've spent the last week doing a deep dive into this and I can't find any evidence that any harm has been caused by long-term low-level exposure to glyphosate or atrazine. I'm not saying it's not happening. It's just unlikely given the current research and the laws restricting the use of these chemicals. If it is happening, then I want Cyrus Sutton to expose this in a film, but he doesn't address any of these questions. Instead, we get anecdote after anecdote. He tells us that a Hawaiian girl has traces of these chemicals in her hair, uh, which is obviously emotionally evocative, but completely meaningless without knowing how much. Are they insignificant levels, which pose no known risk, or are they dangerous levels? And it's weird that the film doesn't tell us that, because that's the big question. Instead, we hear more stories, one about a day at school where 11 children got sick, while bizarrely we're shown images of post-apocalyptic deserted playgrounds and ambulances with their sirens wailing. We're shown a town where one woman alleges that nearly everyone has cancer, and incidentally there's no connection between glyphosate or atrazine and cancer anywhere that I could find in the scientific literature. Then we spend a significant segment following an amazing girl who was tragically born with an intestinal defect through the trauma of her treatment. We're briefly told that some people think this might be connected to GMO crops. No names given, uh, no reason given, but the filmmaker ensures that we're emotionally invested in her well-being. And as a viewer, I found myself feeling angry at the injustice of what this girl's had to put up with. And just quickly forgetting that there was no reason to think that this was any way connected with any of the claims made in the film about pesticides or GMOs, just like all the other stories in the film. Images of the agriculture companies are accompanied by ominous music, while images of organic farmers are accompanied by beautiful soft pianos and healthy innocent children playing with their parents. We then kind of go on this tangent where we start talking about European colonization of Hawaii, which was f- awful. Um, But then we're told how these agriculture companies are foreigners, and so this is kind of the same thing all over again. But it's not. If you believe that these companies are poisoning children, it wouldn't be okay if if these companies were Hawaiian-owned. Like, that doesn't make the poisoning of children all right. So why is it in there? Well, I think they're in there because the whole film is a kind of emotionally evocative narrative. It's not facts. And I think it should be a science documentary about pesticide toxicity. But unfortunately, it's just not. When he does interview or quote scientists or academics, they're either undergraduates or working in a completely different field. One guy seems to be classed as an expert just because he's an MD. Or they put in quotes from scientific bodies like this one from the American Academy of Pediatrics, which said, and this came up on the screen right after we've seen a a post-apocalyptic playground, Children exposed to chronic low levels of restricted-use pesticides are at higher risk of autism, ADHD, leukemia, and asthma. Right, that sounds pretty damning, right? Mm -hmm. Well, after hours and hours of research on every website and publication I could find uh, by the American Academy of Pediatrics, I couldn't find that quote anywhere. I couldn't even find the same sentiment expressed in different words. The only thing that came close that I found was a statement that Um, ingesting, so eating, high levels of pesticides could be linked with ADHD, but this could be prevented by washing fruit and vegetables before consumption. So so a a little twisted. Yeah, which is very different. The main expert, and I thought the most compelling interview, was the former researcher who'd worked in the field of atrazine toxicity. He's a guy called Tyrone Hayes. Um, Now, this guy says he's done research which showed that long-term, low-level exposure to atrazine caused sex changes in frogs. What the film doesn't tell you is that this research was 20 years ago, and since then, no one has been able to replicate his data, despite billions of dollars in research having been done. In the film, he implies that all the other research on the subject is paid for by Syngenta, the big ag company that sells atrazine. He says that means that all the research on the question is biased, and that only his research is valid. And it's true that Syngenta did pay for two massive state-of-the-art studies by Germany's
2: Wiener Klaus, um, but that was because they had to pay for them by law. So just to elaborate that, when Tyrone Hayes came up with these studies uh, that basically showed there was levels of toxicity in frogs, by law, the EPA said like, look, you know, this is a question and we gotta find the answer. So they, they required the company to pay for those studies.
3: No, I don't think the EPA required them to pay for it because of Tyrone Hayes' research. I believe, and I'm not 100% sure, but I believe that the company was required to pay for it because all big ag companies are required to pay for the research, which ensures that the things they're using are safe. Yeah, the the EPA
1: needs to sign off before the stuff can be Mm -hmm. used commercially. Um, and, And in fact, the FDA would have to sign off if it was for consumption. Um, so, if it was going to be used on crops, the FDA and the EPA would have to sign off, and the agriculture company would have to cover the cost of that study being run okay. but the EPA and the fDA are entitled to you know question the validity of the of the study if they think that that the agriculture company has just you know somehow gotten in there and tweaked the results, they would be allowed to question that
2: and is that the reason for the second state of the art study? would it be to peer review the first one? Uh, Actually, these two studies were run
3: by different research teams simultaneously to each other. And so this was just simply a question of, we don't want one outlying result. We want to replicate this over and over again and see if we're getting the same results. Makes sense. That was why there was two on this occasion. It
0: might be important to say that paying for a study is not the same thing as
3: paying for a preferred result of a study. Yeah. So that's a really good point, right? Because... Although uh, Syngenta paid for this study, they were not the ones who conducted it, and they weren't the ones who interpreted the data. That was actually done by the EPA, who audited and vetted on this one every single data point. And the EPA concluded that, and I'm just going to read a quote from their website, no harmful effects on frogs, even at a wider range of doses than Hayes claimed he tested. Um, there have actually been lots of other observational studies which have shown that problems with amphibian populations have been occurring uh, in urban and suburban areas, which, again, contradicts what uh, what Hayes' findings had predicted. I could talk a lot more about Tyrone Hayes. He's a pretty shady guy. Uh, guess what he does now? Hit me. He is a celebrity speaker who pulls in up to $10,000 a time to tell people about his now... Debunked or at least unreplicated research, uh, and how he's the victim of a scientific conspiracy and a big agriculture con- conspiracy. But right. this is the real kicker: he makes money by working as a paid litigation consultant, working for attorneys who seek big settlements from pesticide makers. So he is he is very much not an impartial uh, interviewee. Well, it's definitely in Tyrone Hayes's c- like financial interest to argue that pesticides. Can damage people that's how he makes money so Uh, you know it seems to me like a lot of the
1: the problem because this has been ongoing for a lot of years you know this conflict between the, the the big agriculture companies and the local communities particularly in hawaii but 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 also elsewhere around the world and it seems like a lot of the problem is maybe coming from the fact that the um, you know, the agricultural companies aren't particularly forthcoming with what's being grown in the fields, with what is being sprayed on them in the fields. It's, it's you know, a little bit grey as to what's going on in the field next to
3: somebody's house. Yeah, and that was a part in the film, actually, where we saw um, a clip from, a, I guess it was like a community hearing, where the the big ag companies or their lawyers didn't want to say what was being sprayed and then the guy said why not and he said well because that's because you know we'll have to disclose it everywhere and we were sort of left as a viewer to assume that's because they're hiding something Mm -hmm.
2: yeah but it would seem that kind of if it is their test facility if these are actually their test fields then you kind of wouldn't want it getting out what you're spraying on that field because it's it's proprietary and then your competitors would know kind of what what you're doing so
3: that that's One part of it. I mean, I don't know the answer. I'm just kind of speculating, and I'm sure that's one of the factors. Another factor as well is, and just to be slightly tangential for a moment, the anti GMO crowd, and I will say as well that it was great that in this film they weren't banging the GMOs are bad for you to eat drum, Mm because, you know, that's like a science question that's just been put to bed a long time ago. They're perfectly healthy. So it was nice to see that at least we weren't going to have to get into that. But, um, There's the anti-GMO crowd that's around at the moment is trying to advocate GMO labeling of foods that you buy in supermarkets. So it should say this contains GMOs on it. And their argument is the same thing. It's like, if you're not hiding anything, why not just say it? And the reason you shouldn't say it is because as soon as you write on something, warning contains this, people are quite reasonably going to assume that there's some reason why they're being told that, that it's dangerous in some way. You know, I mean sodium chloride salt right if yeah. it said this substance contains chlorine and then people go online and they google chlorine and they're like wow that was in mustard gas that killed people in the first world war oh my god i shouldn't eat that and it really it's just because they don't understand how chemicals work yeah right so i mean it's a terrible idea to label food as containing gmo because then people are going to assume there's something wrong with gmos yeah. otherwise why would it be labeled I mean, and, and actually, and this is a side point, that, that's kind of the organic industry is pushing for that because they know it gives them a marketing advantage. It's got nothing to do with science or health. Yeah. But so going back to this, this other thing, it's, you know, if, if you're spraying glyphosate on a field, you know, it's a scary sounding chemical and people are going to think, well, why is there a warning sign up there saying glyphosate is being sprayed in this field? Like, should I move? Should I be worried about this? I'm going to start getting out and campaigning. You know, as we now know, it's hundreds of times less toxic than caffeine. I'm sure if it said there is caffeine being sprayed on this field, people wouldn't mind. Yeah. So think how many problems and how much work these companies are going to create for themselves by announcing things that are not dangerous because people will assume they are. And I think that's a very legitimate reason for not wanting to say as well as the, the intellectual property where they're kind of developing mm-hmm. things. And again, I mean, Asher and I are just speculating here, listeners. But it would have been great if, um, if Cyrus had explored these in the film. Yeah. Okay, so we don't have any compelling evidence to back up either of Cyrus's first two claims. Um, but that didn't stop the film concluding that there was a problem and then moving on to provide us with a solution. And, and the solution the film put forward is that we should ditch conventional agriculture. And when you hear people talk about conventional agriculture, listeners, they're, they're including in that the use of GMOs. Mm-hmm. And instead, we should all grow organic food. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I think this is where it gets really interesting. So so here's the problem. By 2050, we're going to have to feed about 10 billion people. Right now, we're using all the arable land that exists in the world. There's no more farmable land for us to expand into unless we start hacking down forests, which we don't want to do. And even then, we don't get a whole lot more. The biggest environmental impact of farming is not the pesticides that are used. It's just the land usage. And water as well. And and water, yeah, but land usage is the main one um, because water gets extrapolated from that. So our big challenge is how efficiently are we using the land that we already have to to produce food? If we can use less land to produce more food, then eventually we're saving people from starvation and, of course, we're saving the planet from environmental degradation as well. Okay, so what do you guys think is more efficient? Uh, Conventional farming, which uses GMOs, or organic farming? conventional farming right by 40 freaking percent at least uh there's a new study that's just come out which is actually specifically looking at german farm land usage um but it's in the same which which came out at 40 percent. but that's in the same ballpark as all of the previous studies which have been 20 to 35 percent now it does vary between crops some crops are more while strawberries for example are much closer in yield size but the real number is way higher than 40 percent and here's why This new study didn't actually just look at land usage. It actually looked at the carbon footprint of a conventional diet, which Mm. includes GMOs, compared to eating organically. Um, Although in this study, they assumed that an organic diet would have 45% less meat. And meat's pretty gnarly. But I'll I'll come to why they included that in a moment. So even with eating 45% less meat, which, as you know, has a much higher carbon footprint than a vegetarian diet, conventional farming was still 40% more efficient. More importantly, though, and this is the thing, most of these studies are comparing acre-for-acre food production, but they're not taking into account where the fertilizer comes from. Okay, so I'm going to test you on your farming knowledge. Um, What is the principal fertilizer on organic crops? Manure. Nice. Where does manure come from? Cows, horses, pigs. And that's where the, mostly it comes from cows, and that's where the land usage for organic farming skyrockets. That's the problem because the cows have to live somewhere and they have to eat something. Um, So manure is nitrogen, basically. Now, conventional farming can use synthetic fertilizer, which has taken nitrogen out of the air. But organic farms have to get it from cows. You simply can't get enough nitrogen in the ground just by rotating crops. So the Green Revolution, which they talk about a lot in the film but never really explain, was when we figured out how to take nitrogen out of the air because up until that point, we were relying basically on how much poo there was in the world. Right now, in the US, organic farming is about 1% of all land and in Europe, it's about 6%. And that's basically already using all the manure we have. That's all the organic fertilizer that we have. So we couldn't grow enough food to feed the world organically even if we wanted to. Or another way to think about it is that all the nitrogen currently in organic fertilizer, manure, is coming from synthetic fertilizer anyway because that's what goes on the crops that the cows are eating. And as soon as you take synthetic fertilizer out of the equation, the whole thing collapses. Mm-hmm. So this whole idea that we can feed the world with organic farming
2: is total... um manure? manure. <laughs> ah, do you like that? <laughs> <laughs> Excuse <laughs> the pun? Yeah, this is one of the... Uh, things that I wish that the movie would have explored differently more than anything. Because it, it really is a, a false dichotomy created where it, it's black or white. It's either organic farming or conventional farming. But in reality, there's about a million um, alternatives in between the two. Right. Um, if say, I I have a bit of a vested interest in it. But my, my mom uh, does a lot of farming in greenhouses specifically where they utilize... Uh, aeroponic farming techniques and basically the idea is they're using less than a quarter of the water by growing vertically and recycling the water they're um, they they don't have to use as much pesticides because it's in a a a greenhouse but it's really really efficient in food production but it's neither the organic farming that they describe in the movie or big commercial farming and I, I think that's an avenue that could have been explored a bit differently So I had a a couple of really interesting
3: conversations with your mum about this because she's one of the leading authorities on it. And one thing I didn't ask her um, was about how it scales up because sometimes you have these really good technologies that work at a small scale, but when you try and scale them up, suddenly you just have some unforeseeable factor like it's a prohibitive cost in terms of, you know, trying to scale the the towers across, you know, acres and acres of field. I I, I don't know what, what... the situation is with that particular technology and scaling.
2: Yeah, basically, I think it scales quite well. Um, it, it, I guess the limiting factor is just the, the greenhouses. How big are you going to um, build the greenhouse? Right now, I think they're not specifically geared at doing mass production just because that's not really um, what she's interested in.
3: And, and like you say, it's, it's a false dichotomy because you know you can grow GMO strawberries in your garden um, and equally, you can have massive industrial-scale organic
2: farms. Mm-hmm. You, I don't know if organic farming needs to be presented as the end-all solution to the world hunger problem. Like you said, like it'd be really great if we could all grow our own lettuce in our backyards. But there's a lot of factors that limit that. You know, do I have the land? Do I have the time?
3: But but again, that's that's not. It's kind of gets. Bundled in the same thing. That's not what organic farming is. Yeah, like you know, growing your growing your own food is a lot of fun and it's very rewarding. And if you've got land by your house that you're not using for something else and you're growing food in it, you know that's great. Like yeah. do it. It's it's a really fun, rewarding, fascinating thing to do. And it's great to teach your kids how to grow food and where it comes from and to teach them about the nitrogen cycle. But it's not one or the other. And and growing your own food and it being organic, those things are are not connected in any way.
2: Yeah, and that's something that I really would have, that's a story I would have liked to be told because a lot of the benefits of growing your own food is not necessarily just having that food there. A lot of it is, you know, uh, having a relationship with your food. There's a lot of data that shows that the further you are disassociated from the food growing process, um, the more likely you are to make choices towards more processed or more unhealthy foods. You know, I, I know it's a great learning tool about nutrition just to actually be there for the full nitrogen process and to be growing. And that that's a story that I think would have been really nice to tell.
3: Yeah, and I, I think just being thoughtful about what you're eating is huge. And anything that you can introduce into someone's life where they're being more thoughtful about their consuming is big. I mean, like most, are we all, are we all vegetarians? You used to eat meat now and again, right, Harry? I'm, I'm an occasional meat eater. You're an occasional meat eater. So like I became vegetarian about six months ago and... It just it meant that I now think about everything that I put on my plate because I couldn't eat all the default meals. And just that process of starting to think about or having to think about what I was eating, um, you know, I think it's a really positive thing. It makes you eat much better. The other thing about growing your own food is that when you buy stuff in a supermarket, it will be optimized for, you know, shelf life usually. Whereas if you grow heirloom seeds, whether they're GMO or not, there are some amazing GMO heirloom seeds that you can buy. It can be optimized for taste. So it might not last very long, that tomato or strawberry or sweet potato, but it'll be like absolutely delicious. Mm -hmm. But because you're picking it and then taking it upstairs and eating it, you know, you don't need that long shelf life. So you can eat much better food than you might buy uh, from a supermarket. But again, that's got nothing to do with organic or anything like that. I mean, basically, organic really is not connected to any of this, is it? Organic
1: is a marketing term because you, you, can, you can throw pesticides and herbicides all over organic food and it's still organic. It's just you have to use a specific set of pesticides that they've decided are, are not made by big agriculture. But, but
3: I mean, most of them are terrible. Like they're way worse than any of these ones we've been talking about. So this was a, a really egregious admission uh, in the latter part of the film is that he just doesn't mention that organic foods have just as many pesticides, actually more, than GMO foods. So copper sulfate, which is a really common organic pesticide, and of course is somehow fine because it's natural, which of course is a marketing (laughs) term and has no scientific significance at all, that has an LD50 of 30, 30 milligrams per kilogram. That's 20 times more toxic than atrazine, and it's 144 times more toxic than glyphosate. And it breaks down more slowly in the soil. And am I right in saying it's also significantly less
1: efficient at doing its job? Uh, yes. It, it's not as good at keeping the pests down as, as those other chemicals. So you have to use more of it that's, to that's keep true, the pests
3: away. That's true of pretty much all organic fertilizers. You have to use more of them and more frequently because they're less effective. So there, there's, a, there's a great article actually about organic pesticides by Steve Novella on the Neurologica blog. Uh, I'll just read you a paragraph from it quickly. Uh, The assumption is that natural pesticides are safer than synthetic pesticides, but there's absolutely no scientific reason for this assumption. The source of a chemical says nothing about the properties of that chemical. When naturally derived pesticides are tested, they're just as toxic as many conventional pesticides, especially when you consider the whole picture. You need to consider not just the direct toxicity, but how much needs to be used, how often and how much gets into the environment and the effects on non-target species. Overall, natural pesticides are less effective and therefore have to be used in larger amounts and more frequently. You well, know, I think that there's just this fear out there of like chemicals and people somehow think that chemicals aren't natural and that they're bad. And like, I would just say to you listeners, like, don't be scared of chemicals. Chemicals are nature's building blocks. Everything in the natural world is made out of chemicals, like everything. An organic papaya is made out of chemicals. You're made entirely 100% out of chemicals. Every product that you ever buy that says all natural has just got chemicals in it because it's made of chemicals because that's what everything's made of. So to conclude, I think looking at Cyrus's film, you know, and as a general rule, it's good to always attribute to people's words or actions the most generous possible interpretation for their motives. I like to ask myself, what's the best possible intention someone could have had behind saying or doing this? And if you think I'm coming down a bit harshly on Cyrus and you're thinking, look, he may have got it a bit wrong in the way he presented the film, but he's probably a good guy and he's probably genuinely worried about the people he cares about. Well, just think about this. If kids are getting sick in Hawaii from pesticides, Then Cyrus has made a film which obviously prevents these powerful personal stories, which are compelling if you're not familiar with all of the common pitfalls which we all make when evaluating evidence, but actually present zero compelling evidence to anyone genuinely interested in exploring the facts behind what's going on. Let me give you an example of why that's a problem for the people that Cyrus features in the film. So I love the Bing Levitator. I think it's a great nose rider. This is your surfboard? Yeah. Yeah. This is my surfboard that I was surfing <laughs> this morning, right? If you ask me why it's such a good nose rider and the reason I gave was, well, because it's blue and blue is an awesome color, then you'd be left thinking, well, if that's the best reason that he can come up with, maybe it isn't such a great board. In reality, of course, it might still be a really great board. It's just that I've put forward a terrible reason and said that's my best reason. Yeah. So I think that's kind of what, what has happened in this film. You know, if there is a pesticide problem in Hawaii, then in my opinion, Cyrus Sutton has undermined the ability of the local community to fight that problem in exactly the same way, despite possibly having the best intentions. But I have to point out, he didn't put one credible scientist whose area is GMO, pesticides or agriculture in the film. He didn't put one representative from any of those big ag companies to talk about it in their film either. And those big companies, like they know they've got a PR problem. I'm sure that Monsanto would love to have a guy in the film putting their side across if, if they'd been asked. You know, at some point you have to think this isn't really an oversight. This is someone trying to tell a very specific story who doesn't want inconvenient facts cropping up in his film. On the other hand, if kids are getting sick in Hawaii but it's not from pesticides, and right now there doesn't seem to me to be any clinical epidemiological evidence that kids are getting more sick than usual. I mean, autism rates have gone up across the board but that's because we're better at diagnosing autism not because there's more of it anti-vaxxers but if these reports are correct and kids are getting sick but it's not from pesticides well then you know it seems that it's got to be something else Uh, and again by by so adamantly being convinced that it is about these pesticides you're distracting us from that and that's not good either to be honest it seems to me most likely right now that there is this compelling narrative within the community which is all about big corporations from the mainland versus local families, and then confirmation bias kicks in and kind of does the rest. In other words, every time someone gets sick, then in people's minds that's just more evidence that it must be the pesticides. So in people's minds the evidence is overwhelming, but you know that's exactly how confirmation bias works. If that's what's going on, then if you're a parent in Hawaii, seeing this film is likely to cause you a huge amount of unnecessary anxiety. And if you're someone whose child is sick or who has autism or leukemia, well, now on top of the trauma of dealing with that, now you have the added burden of all of that guilt feeling like, you know, maybe this is in some way your fault from where you chose to live or the food you chose to buy. Uh, And I think that's really bad. Mm. The other message that runs throughout the film is about distrusting the scientific consensus. And I think that's really dangerous. When people trust the scientific consensus less than the opinion of their friends, That can lead to climate science denial, the anti-vaccine movement, evolution denial, people dying from curable illness because they chose to opt out of of conventional treatment and have uh, alternative medicines instead. And, you know, that's just the tip of the anti-science iceberg. Don't get me wrong, there's a lot of bad science out there. But the answer isn't simply to stop doing science. The answer is to do more science and do it better. Simply stopping doesn't make any sense. That would be like getting a math equation wrong and then concluding that instead of trying to do better math in future, you should stop doing math and start just guessing at the answers instead. And sadly, that's the conclusion reached by the only Hawaiian scientist that Cyrus decides to introduce us to in the film, which is a real bummer because it would have been nice for him to present a Hawaiian scientist as a positive role model instead. A single study can be shown to be wrong, but it's science that shows us if it's wrong. It's a self-correcting system. That's the whole point of independent peer review and replicating data. Sometimes it takes a while, but over time, evidence for any specific claim builds up either way, and you, you end up with a scientific consensus. Not just one crappy study that makes a stupid headline in HuffPo like chocolate found to prevent cancer. The reality is that a real scientific consensus is built very slowly and unsexily over time. They're rarely like big Eureka headline moments. It's more like the needle just slowly heads in one direction or the other on any given subject. Each study just nudges it a little bit more. But once the needle is all the way way over on one side of a subject after hundreds of studies by unconnected individuals looking at the same problem from different sides, if you then say, No, I just don't agree. Actually, I think the Earth is flat or 6,000 years old or GMOs are bad for you or organic is healthier or climate change might not be happening or astrology is great. Then you're almost definitely wrong and you're on the wrong side of history, as they say.
1: All right, that is everything that we have time for in this rather extended episode, um, but hopefully that's uh, lots of stuff to keep you going over our, uh, over our possible
3: absence. Yeah, we're not going to record for a while, so you could listen to this episode in two bits. Yeah, perfect. And, and if you disagree with my whole piece, please email harry at podcast.sexymedia.com.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, before we, uh, before we wrap up, uh, we just got our regular What to Watches.
2: Ash, what's your What to Watch? I was pretty jazzed on the new Dane Reynolds piece. Every time I think Dane Reynolds is getting fat and kind of over it, he releases something that, like, all right, this guy still got it. Yeah, he's, uh, <laughs> his, his latest piece with his company former is pretty special. He's kind of just checks all the boxes, surfing big waves, really big areas. Uh Will, what would you like to recommend?
0: Uh, Bouncing with Ryan Birch. It is a Stab magazine video um, and it's all things Ryan Birch. He's uh, talking about his inspiration as a shaper, uh, you know what it was like for him competing as a youngster and
1: some of his cool boards. Uh, uh, Ryan Birch is just amazing. I'm a big fan. Go watch the video. Can I just say that it feels to me like in the last year or so, Stab has really upped their game. Like, a lot of the best material, a lot of the stuff that we're recommending mm. on these What to Watches is coming out of
2: STAB. And they just released, like, most of their back catalogue of videos on Vimeo and, and YouTube. Yeah. So oh. you've got a lot of uh, STAB mag videos to watch while we're going. Uh, what's your What to Watch? My What to Watch is a book. Do you remember books? Mm-hmm.
3: Oh, those weird paper things. It's Ooh. an art book by an artist called Kurt Jackson, who's from Cornwall. And his, his book is called Obsession, Following the Surfer. And I don't know about you guys, but generally speaking, paintings of waves, I think, just look pretty shit. Is that okay to say? They're just like, they're quite cheesy most of the time. And, you know, anyway, this guy, I just think is, is an amazing painter. He does quite painterly Turner-esque kind of paintings. Uh, I've actually got the book. I'm looking at it now. I got it from Harry's mum. But uh, it's, a, it's a really amazing book. Anyway, check it out. Kurt Jackson.
1: Yeah. And it's worth pointing out that the
3: sales of that book are going to help Surface Against sewage. Oh, Cool. Can I, do, can I do one other what to watch? I haven't actually seen it yet, but there's a documentary on Netflix called Resurfaced. It's about veterans coming back and dealing with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder by going surfing. And uh, I don't know. I haven't seen it. It might not be good, but it looked really good from the trailer, so I'm going to check that out.
1: Oh, there you go. Well, it, there we go. Listeners, watch it, and we'll have another uh, another film review from Ruin the next episode. <laughs> the angry,
3: <laughs> irate
0: film <laughs> review. <laughs> whilst we're in the business of second what to watches, can i say another as well go for it the it's another stab thing i went crazy <laughs> with stab on my apple tv the other day so i've been watching a lot of their stuff um the red eye rob machado film i don't know if mm, anyone's seen from that. reef yeah very cool it's yeah, with uh, it's rob and taylor knox um in france and rob surfing man it it just gets better and better he's so smooth and so stylish and you know on sort of some lumpy onshore waves in france he's just the coolest stylish surfer ever
1: so definitely go watch it for some inspiration very cool and uh, my recommendation with the wave pool contest coming up is i'm sure most of you guys will have seen it already but that clip of the uh, the left-hander that they've now built at kelly's wave pool and jerry lopez going out and riding it i want to go too
2: it i want to get my
0: invite
1: <laughs> <laughs> Uh, To be honest, I think they've ruined it putting a left in there. It was great as a (laughs) right. (laughs) No, but now that there's the the left and the right, I'm really interested to see the format of the competition. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is now all that we have time for. Um, If you would like to get in contact with us for any questions or comments, then you can email me through podcast at com. If you're interested in coming and staying with us at the resort um, or or information about our coaching, you can email Kerri-Ann on uh, info at surfsimply.com. And as we said before, you can follow all of us on our social media feeds while we're away. And if you fancy leaving us a, a review on Stitcher or iTunes, we'd really appreciate that as well.
3: I know that I was talking to Carrie ann the other day and I know that the spaces at our surf coaching resort here for 2018 are pretty much full I think we may have a few spots still open at the end of 2018. We've had a lot of people getting in touch about 2019. Um, but what we've decided to do is not release any of the dates for booking until about November time. So uh, if anyone's thinking about visiting us in 2018, you, may, you can go on a waiting list if you email Kerri-Ann, but you may have missed your slot 2019 First of November, set a reminder in your phones. That's when you'll be able to book up for them.
1: Very good. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, from all of us here, goodbye. Joe.
0: That was the Surf Simply podcast from the Surf Simply Coaching Resort in Costa Rica. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses for experienced surfers and technical coaching for entry level surfers, go to
1: surfsimply.com.